Today we're going to observe one of the only two ordinances in the New Testament that Christians are commanded to observe, and that is Holy Communion, or better known by us as the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper. All of these terms are synonymous. The other ordinance, of course, is adult water baptism. But before we actually do this this morning, I want to give you some biblical background to it. Um, and then also some instruction, actually, before we begin to, to partake of the communion. In John 13, chapter, John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. All four of the gospel writers uh, wrote about the Passover meal, which was in the upper room. And although all four wrote about it, none of them actually told the whole story. And so that's why it's advisable in your own devotions uh, to read the four accounts of it to get a full round picture. In fact, in John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30, uh, that's where the betrayal of Judas happened. John marked that well. And then, of course, in Luke 22, Mark 14, and Matthew 26 is the other references within Gospels. But then also there's that classic chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, which we always uh, share from whenever we're breaking bread on a Sunday morning. John's Gospel, chapter 13, to right through to chapter 17, those chapters are fantastic. This is the longest discourse recorded that Jesus had with his disciples. And it was all taken part in the upper room. And he taught them many things and encouraged them and strengthened them and warned them and all kinds of things. But he was specifically there uh, to hold the Passover meal. And this Passover meal would be like none other. All these disciples and Jesus were Jewish. So from little boys, they had grown up with the Passover. They had partaken of many Passover meals. But this one would be very, very different in this respect because this is where Jesus was going to tell them that he was literally going to become the Passover lamb, the one whom would be slain from the foundation of the world, the one that John said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And so this was the setting uh, for the Last Supper, as it's often called. And amid all of the sharings he was doing, he wanted to bring their attention specifically to this here. And the annual feast of the Jewish Passover was commemorating something that happened way back in the book of Exodus. And you remember how that the children of Israel, they had been in captivity now uh, in Egypt for 400 years. It all began with Joseph and how that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But then through the miraculous providence of God, he actually rose up to be prime minister of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And how God gave him great wisdom. And he was able to save Egypt from starvation through what he was able to do regarding the harvests. Not only that, but he was able to save his whole family, who he invited them to come and live in the land of Goshen. And so what began as, as Joseph and his family and his extended family, maybe about 70 people, over the 400 years, now they had grown to about 2 million strong. And so it was time for them to leave and go to get the promised land that God had promised to give them. And Moses then had been risen up to be their great leader to be able to take them from that. And so that first night uh, regarding the 
Passover. Uh, that's when they had to make ready and had to do what God had commanded them to do. And they had to make a, a little meal and a lamb had to be slain. And the doorposts and the lentils of their houses, there had to be blood of the lamb had to be put upon them. And remember that God had, in order to get them out of Egypt, God had sent plagues upon Pharaoh's and upon the Egyptians because they were really had God's people in bondage for all these years. And so it was time for them to go, but Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. So God sent plagues. And the first nine plagues, each one was worse than the other one, had not touched Israel, the people of Israel in the land of Goshen at all. They were safe from that. But the last one, which was the death plague, uh, this was the worst one. And every household in Egypt, every household was going to have the firstborn die in one night. Can you imagine that? It must have been awful. But in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, God said, I want you to kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and lentils, and then when the death angel comes and he sees the blood, he will pass over you. And so that's obviously where the term Passover comes from. I should tell you that the Passover meal, that first one, was done in, a, in quite a hurry uh, because uh, they had to leave very, very quickly indeed. And so... The meat that they had, the ingredients that they used, the form that it took uh, was all quite similar even in Jesus' day. Uh, they used basically the same ingredients. They basically had the same format as it were. But in AD 70, it all began to change because that's when the Roman destruction came, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and the temple was torn down and burned and the priests and, and all the people were, were dispersed uh, diaspora where they were dispersed among the Gentile nations and so now they have no temple they have no priests and obviously they could not slay any ceremonial lambs for Passovers and so wherever they would be in the world they would just have to adapt when it came time every year to have a Passover they would just have to adapt and do what they could do and so whatever country they would be in they would set up a meal at a certain time of the year for Passover. And this meal would be the, the cider meal, S-E-D-E-R, cider meal. And the cider meal would uh, consist of several things. And I haven't time this morning to go into every little detail of it. It would take far, far too long. But you can imagine over the millennia, uh, how that over thousands of years, things had changed somewhat. Because depending on which country they were settled in, uh, depending what food was available, depending which branch of Judaism they came from, even to this day, then there would be some slight differences in how they prepared and how they ate the meal. Not much, but some. And so cider means order. That's simply what it means. It means order. So there's a structure and there's an order to the Passover meal. And in modern day, what they use, they use a book called the Haggadah. And the, Hag the Haggadah it means telling or story. And really is a book of instruction to get through the whole Passover meal because it's quite a long session. I mean, this could take hours. And there would be scripture readings, there'd be hymns, there'd be songs, there'd be storytelling, there'd be history lessons, and there'd be step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step instructions on how they were to take the Passover. I want to come back a little bit later to the actual uh, Passover made in modern day terms because there's some beautiful things that I want to point out to you. Now in Christ's day, uh, there in the upper room, the Passover made would take place. 
But preparation had to be made first. As always, there had to be preparation for the meal. And in Luke chapter 22, reading from verse 7, Then the day of unleavened bread came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. And that would be unusual, because usually that was what the woman did. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. And so they went and found it just as he had sent to them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, of course, in preparing the Passover, uh, certain things would have to be done. They'd have to make sure, first of all, that the room would be swept, it would be cleaned, that there would be no unleavened bread. In fact, there would be no trace of leaven anywhere in the room. There'd be no grains or corn or any cereal because that could be leaven. So that would have to be cleaned out. They would have to get bitter herbs. They would have to have a lamb that would be slain. They could buy the lamb and, and the priest would make sure that it was a perfect lamb, it was a spotless lamb, a yearling of the flock. And then that would be taken it would be killed, its blood would be shed, its blood would be poured out, and its body would be roasted, ready for the Passover meal. And of course, they would have to have unleavened bread. Plus, they would have to have a kind of a, a sauce. And it would be ingredients like, like dates and raisins and figs, and maybe some vinegar, maybe some wine, all mixed in. You remember whenever Jesus uh, dipped in the, in the, a sop in the bowl and gave it to Judas? Well, that's what he was dipping into. And so there was different elements uh, to this meal. And then there would be four cups of wine. And these four cups of wine would be drunk at different phases of the meal. And all of them point to something. In fact, uh, we believe in Exodus chapter uh, 6. In Exodus chapter 6, the four I wills, these four verbs. In Exodus 6, 6 and 7... Therefore, I say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And so these four I wills correspond, we believe, uh, to the four uh, cups that are on the table. By the way, they would be not sitting at a table. You know, that famous painting of Jesus and the 12 apostles all sitting at a table at the Passover, that didn't happen. They would be reclining on low-lying couches or big pillows. That would be the, the form and the style. And so the Passover meal would begin. The usual custom would be it would begin with this cup, first cup of wine, which would be mixed with water, and it would be drunk with thanksgiving unto God. And so this first cup in relation to Exodus 6 would be the cup of sanctification. Exodus 6, 6. I am the Lord. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will bring you out of Egypt. Sanctification means to be set apart. To sanctify something is to set it apart. This lectern I'm speaking from today, I mean, this could be used 
made and used for a business meeting. It could be used in a ministerial meeting. But we have got it and we have, in a sense, sanctified. We have set it apart for holy use to preach the gospel from and to teach the Bible from. So sanctified means to be set apart. And God is saying here, I am the Lord. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will sanctify you. I will set you apart. Now, they had been a people who were apart. They had lived in the land of Goshen in Egypt, separate from the Egyptians. But after 400 years, you know, they compromised somewhat and they began to intermarry and they began to lose uh, some of the godliness that they had as separate people. And so come this time, God said, I'm going to separate you from Egypt completely and entirely. I'm going to take you out of there and you're going to be uh, uh, to the nations. You're going to be my sanctified people to the nations. You know, the people of Israel, even to this day, are set apart. We can see they're different than any other nation on the face of the earth. No wonder they're being attacked so much because God has literally set them apart, even as a nation. And so that's what sanctified means. I am the Lord, I will bring you out of Egypt. Now, you and I, believer, we are sanctified. If we're in Christ today, we have been set apart from this world for holy use, for God's use. Now, it doesn't mean that we cloister ourselves away and separate ourselves. Separation is not isolation in this sense. We're not isolated from the Word. Jesus wasn't isolated from the Word. He loved to be around people. And even the publicans and sinners, He was around them all the time. He had maids with them. But it means we're set apart for a godly use. We're no longer, we're in the Word, but we're not of the world, even though we're in it, but we're set apart from it in order to serve God. And then scriptures would be read and uh, reminding them of their captivity in Egypt and the great deliverance that God had given them and the reason for the Passover meal. And then by holding up bitter herbs, it would remind them of the, the bitterness that their forefathers uh, suffered in Egypt under the bondage of the Egyptians. And then they would hold up the unleavened bread and that would remind them of the suddenness of which God delivered them. You know, Unleavened, unleavened bread, it, it, it bakes quickly. Leavened bread takes a, a lot longer, but unleavened is quick. So this would remind them of the suddenness, how God suddenly moved and took them out of that Egypt. And one night, they were all gone, those two million people. And then the 113th and 114th Psalm would be read, maybe even sang, and uh, a short prayer would be given. And then the second cup of wine at this point would be taken. And this is the cup of praise. In Exodus 6, 6, I will rescue you from their bondage. All those years. In fact, some of them actually were born as slaves in Egypt. And now he says, I will rescue you from their bondage. Now that was something to praise God for, wasn't it? And we have been rescued from the bondage of our Egypt, which is this world that we're in. We have been rescued from the bondage of it. It no longer holds that attraction to us. It no longer keeps us bound. We have been rescued by God from the bondage of our Egypt. And so, after the hands were washed and the meal was eaten, then the host would take the unleavened bread and break it and pronounce a blessing over it. And I want to come back to that very important thing just in a moment or two. And then the third cup of wine was drunk. And this cup was called the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, Paul called it. And the host would pray over 
uh, a prayer of thanksgiving to God for all his goodness and his deliverance. And Ezekiel, uh, sorry, Exodus 6, 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgment. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. We have been redeemed believer by the outstretched arms of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to Calvary and he was nailed to that cross. We have been redeemed by his outstretched arms of mercy. This would be the cup that our Savior would have taken up. This would have been the cup that he took after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Luke 22:20. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Let me just pause there just for a moment. These two things that Jesus did, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you, which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. And when Jesus did that, that was something special because all of the years that all of those disciples had been at, at Passover maze, even the ones prior to this, they had been with Jesus at Passover maze. Never once did they ever, ever hear those words. This was something different. This was Jesus telling them, I'm going to be the Passover lamb. I'm going to be the one who's going to die and shed his blood. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed. And suddenly that changes the whole thing. Unfortunately, although this was a significant moment for our Lord Jesus Christ, and it was a significant moment for the disciples, unfortunately they missed it. They just didn't quite grasp what he was saying. And it's a very significant portion of scripture for us today as well. And in the fourth cup, which was the cup of acceptance, in Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I will take you to be my people. You will be my special people and I will be your God. We are God's special people, believer, this morning. He has taken us to be his. We're in his family by redemptive right today. We belong to him. We are his sons. We are his daughter. We are his children. He has taken us. He's accepted us. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 6, we have been accepted in the beloved. The only reason God accepts us is because we trusted his son as our Lord and Savior. And once we did that, we have been fully accepted into his family as one of his sons and one of his daughters. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful, the Savior we have got today. And so they drank that final cup before they separated. And then they sang the last of the four Hallel Psalms. The four last Hallel Psalms, 115, 16, 17, and 18. Those are the four last Hallel Psalms. There's six in all, and it's the great Hallel. Hallel just means praise. And from that we get Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And these would be sung at all of the feasts, and they'd be recited in full, in full, all of them. And probably these were the very hymns that Jesus and the disciples, when the supper was ended, when they went out into the night to go to Gethsemane, where he would pray that tremendous prayer and also be arrested and then taken uh, and to be tried and eventually to be crucified. And so these would probably be the hymns that they would sing. Imagine, imagine our Lord Jesus Christ church this morning. 
Imagine at that very moment when he knew within hours, literally within hours, he was going to be arrested. He was going to be falsely accused. He was going to be bitten and beaten and whipped. And he was going to be put on a cruel cross. And he was going to die a horrible, cruel death for you and for me on Calvary. And yet, here he is. And he's singing praises unto God. It's wonderful. What a Savior we have got today. And so during the Last Supper, the last Passover meal, Jesus emphasized these two things, the bread that was broken and the cup to drink, representing his body and representing his blood. And that's the nucleus of the Passover meal that we have taken as believers to represent our communion service, those two elements, the bread and the wine, his body and his blood. And so, after Jesus had died and was buried and rose again, all those believers, they would meet regularly. There was no church buildings that we have, but they would meet in homes, and the bigger the home, the better. They could get more into it. Or they would meet beside a river or somewhere, anywhere. They would meet together, and they would share together, and they would pray, and they would read the Word of God, and they would encourage one another, and God would bless them. And then on the first day of the week, which corresponds to our Sunday, of course. And that first day of the week, whenever they met together, then they concluded their meeting together with what became known as a love feast. And this would be like a, a communal uh, feast together. And uh, they, would, they would have great fellowship and they would eat and they would drink and they would enjoy themselves in the presence of God. But the Apostle Paul, you remember, had to rebuke the Corinthian church because they were abusing this supper this special time because at the end of this supper they would keep a piece of bread take a little wine and they would remember the Lord's death and so it was a special moment but they had been abusing it the rich had brought in more food than they could eat but they wouldn't share it with the poor people who had hardly nothing some of them were drinking so much wine they were just being getting ridiculous and so Paul rebuked him and he says, be careful. He says, this is a precious moment for remembering the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make light of this. It's very special. And so from then on, for this past 2,000 years, the Christian church has observed this ordinance to meet together and to break bread together. I was just thinking, I was just thinking the other day that this, in 40 years, since this church has been in existence here in Moira. This is the first time in 40, 40 years that we've had such a, a long time between communions. Such a long time. I can hardly believe it. Normally we have it every week, but it's been weeks and weeks since we've done this together. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the, the wonderful chapter that, uh, uh, that Paul highlights uh, the communion for. And I want us to just read a little bit in it before we partake in a moment. But first of all, I said that I would come back and talk to you just a moment about the modern day Passover meal. You know, all over the world, uh, Jews, wherever they would be, uh, almost all of them would have the Passover meal. And they would invite family and friends. And of course, it would be a great occasion, especially for the observant Jews, which meant a lot more to them. And so 
what they would do is they would prepare their home. It had to be spotlessly clean. There had to be no leaven in it. They would search it out. There was a whole ritual went on regarding the leaven to make sure there was no leaven. Leaven, you see, in the Bible generally is a, is a, is a symbol of sin that rises up. And so Jesus had no sin. And so the leavened bread, which we believe represents Christ himself, he had no sin. He was completely and utterly sinless. He was pure and holy. In him was no sin. He became sin for us, but in him was no sin. And so they would clean that. Then they would have a, a special dish, which I can't go over everything in that dish today. And it's wonderful. And they'd have a special dish, which they had their different foods. And depending on which country and which branch of Judaism they came from would maybe be slightly different, but basically it would be the same. And then uh, whenever they would do that, the, the host, and this is the couple of things I want to tell you that's really, really special. Now, these are modern day Jews, so they're not thinking of Jesus Christ. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And yet, and yet, even in what they do, <laughs> it's marvelous, listen to this. They have a, a, a bag. The host would bring out a bag and it would usually be made of silk and there'd be three pockets in the bag. And then they would take uh, three pieces of matzah, matzah bread or matzah or matzah bread and it would be unleavened bread. Now, if it hadn't been locked down, I would have tried very hard to, to get a piece to show you exactly what it's like, but I couldn't do that. But it would be about seven inches by seven inches square. It'll be about the thickness of a of a rivita, you know what the rivita looks like, or a cream cracker, something like that. That sort of thickness, seven by seven. And in this bag there would be these three different compartments and these three pieces of unleavened bread in there. And then he would take out one of these pieces, the middle piece. Now we don't really know. Jews doesn't really know what these three pieces stand for. Some of the old rabbis said it stood for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others said it stood for the priesthood and the Levites and the congregation of Israel. Others said it stood for something else, but we're not sure. But I think it would be okay for us as believers if it stood for the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, don't you? And Jesus being in the middle, the middle matzo. Now listen to this. He takes out the middle matzo. He breaks it in half. And then he takes it into another room. He wraps it up in cloth. Then he hides it in another room where nobody can see it. He may bury it underneath a cushion. He may bury it in a drawer. He may hide it behind a curtain. But he makes sure that nobody can see it. Then he comes back in and they continue the meal. And then they, they finish the meal. Now this particular piece, the middle matzo bread, is the afikomen. It's called the afikomen. And that word means afterwards. That's just what it means, afterwards. And so after the meal is complete and finished, then he goes into the room again or sends somebody in to find it, maybe a child. Sometimes they make a little game like hide and seek. They go in, find it, bring it in. Everybody can see it because it's been found again. And then they break a little piece off, everybody gets it, a little bit of wine, and then the whole thing is over, it's finished, it's completed, it's finished. Now think of this. Here are these Jewish friends and they're having their Passover. They don't believe that Jesus is Messiah. And yet, here's a perfect picture of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus. The one who was in the middle, the one who was between two thieves, 
crucified, the one whose body was broken. Isaiah said he was marred more than any man. And then what? His body was wrapped in cloth. Then he was taken away and he was buried in a tomb. He was hidden away for three days and three nights. Nobody saw him until he reappeared, until the resurrection. And then all his disciples saw him. And then over 500 people saw him all at one time. It was wonderful. Suddenly he's reappeared and there he is. And now it is complete. And yet, and yet they don't see that. And also the matzo bread. Now, I said a moment ago I couldn't get it, but the closest I can find to it is, if I show you here, is a cream cracker, a Jacob's cream cracker. And I want you to notice something about it. If you look closely at it, which we all know what a cream cracker is, you'll see that it's perforations on it. It's been pierced. Was not our Lord Jesus Christ pierced for us? Doesn't it say in Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, that they shall look upon him, the, the people of Israel, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced? <laughs> Was not he pierced his hands and his feet? Was not his head pierced with the crown of thorns? And the soldier stuck a spear into his side and pierced him? He was pierced. And also the matzo bread, a little bit like the cream cracker. If you notice here how when it was, when it was baked, there's a little bit of almost colouring there, a little bit of singeing on it. Well, in the matzo bread, it's baked in an oven in a kind of a grill type thing. And actually, it's striped. It's striped. It's literally striped. He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah said. He, by his stripes... We were healed. And there it is in the matzo bread. And yet, they fail to see it. How sad. But we can see and we can understand. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and we'll end with this and then we'll partake. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, let me make something clear. We do not believe for one second whenever we partake of the piece of bread that it mysteriously, mystically turns into the literal body of Jesus Christ. We do not believe that at all. We do not believe that that wine in the cup turns into his blood. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus was taught about him being the bread of life and how the people should feed of him and drink his blood and eat his flesh. And the people didn't understand that they thought he was speaking literally, but he was just using it metaphorically. And even his disciples, they thought, this is a hard saying. And he realized what they were thinking. And he says, well, look, if, what are you going to think? If you think that, if you think I'm speaking literally, what are you going to say when I go back to heaven again? What are you going to say to that? He says, no, no, he says, no. He says, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so he's saying, Feed on me. Be nourished by me. I'm the bread of life. Be nourished by me. That's what he was saying. 
And so he says, This do in remembrance of me. And in the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Glory to God. And for 2,000 years, the Christian church all over the world has been doing exactly that. Remembering his death, remembering the cross, remembering our deliverance, remembering that he is our Passover. Remembering that judgment has passed over us and that we live and not die to the glory of God. But then finally he goes on to say, Therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And sometimes Christians, it concerns them. Sometimes believers worry about this. And they think, well, I'm not worthy to take this. Actually, none of us are worthy to take this. None of us are worthy of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by his grace and mercy that we can actually partake of this. It's said in an unworthy manner. Not that you're unworthy, but in an unworthy manner. Remember I said earlier how that the Corinthians, and this is written to them, how they were arguing and fighting about food and drink over the, over the Passover meal and over the breaking of the bread. See, that was unworthy manner. And so he says, don't do that. There'll be consequences if you do that. He says, don't do that. But it's not that we'd never be worthy, but Christ has made us able to stand before a holy God and partake of the emblems today. <laughs> 